1: Conspiracy
0: Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: Hey, Jim, welcome back. How are you? I'm great now that I'm talking to you again, Richard. I always enjoy coming and chatting with you on various platforms of various shows and excited to be speaking directly to a lot of your, you know, sort of hardcore fan base with this. I, I, I want to let my metaphorical hair down as long as I can in this and, and just get weird. Yeah. <laughs> You've come to the right place. So you're heading into season four of
0: Euphomet. First of all, for those who maybe they're new to this podcast or they missed you on Coast to Coast when we did that a couple of months ago, tell people a little bit about Euphomet.
1: Yeah, Euphomet is a documentary audio podcast about the unknown and our relationship to it. Uh, These are features on individuals who have experienced unprecedented weirdness in their life that has really helped and shaped and transformed them as people. Uh, So I go to these locations. uh, I embed myself with these individuals. Sometimes that means sleeping on their couch for a week. Sometimes that means hiking up onto a, you know, sort of a red rock mountain with them. I go on adventures and I chronicle how those things have shaped their lives and I am embarking on that very thing right now in um, a drastically different way for season four.
0: Right, because as as you say, season four just about to launch, but how does one do a Boots on the Ground documentary series in the age of COVID?
1: Well, it's, it's... it's hard. <laughs> and honestly, frankly, I'm not even sure yet. Um, what's interesting is it, typically when you and I speak, Richard, I am in the middle of something and it's never as clean as, you know, I've got this worked out and I've got my press, you know, bits, you know, highlighted and figured out in, in sort of clear cut descriptors, maybe to the chagrin of your audience. I'm not sure. if <laughs> Um, you know, for, for this season, it's, it's a work in progress and, you know, I've had, you know, I've had friends ask me, well, how are you going to retain that intimacy that you, that that you rely on for your show, right? Uh, it, it, feels intimate. Um, and, and I think being with people face to face, you know, staring at each other's eyes, sharing space, maybe having beverages together opens up, opens up us in a, in a different way. Um, not a better way, not a worse way than an interview show, but just in a different way. And so, I've been trying to figure out ways in which I can bring uh, the, the, the guests essentially into a space that we can be as close together. So I've been figuring out ways that we can do tech together on video and then transition to audio only and in that way to just create a more intimate space where, we, yeah, we see each other for a second. Now let's shut that off. We know we're here and let's transport, you know, transport me to this time and place so it is different but I'm doing the best I can in uh, creating a, a, a documentary type of feel and it, it also involves you know me going out in the field kind of alone without the guests as uh, co-adventure buddies and, uh, and, and digging into some of these spaces that maybe are important to them or uh, resonate with their story that can translate well in, in a documentary format It sounds like you're going
0: to also stay a little closer to home uh, in season four, which means Puget Sound. Tell me a little bit about uh, what the Pacific Northwest and Puget Sound means to you.
1: Yeah, it means a hell of a lot. And it means, let's just say this, there's more context to why it means so much to me now. I've had listeners ask me before, you know, they go, you know, you spent so much time in Ohio and New York and all these different places for the show, but you haven't really had much content from where you're at. And you're always talking about how the Northwest has influenced your artistic process and your voice and and your work, you know. And I always attributed that to the overall vibe, the very sleepy, dark, foggy winters that we have here. Um, It's constantly wet. Uh, It constantly looks like some David Fincher movie from the 90s, right? Uh, There is a mood here, Um, Twin Peaks, right? And, you know, now after this year of being forced to kind of stay closer to home and really turn over more rocks than I ever have about the history of what makes this place so strange has given me such a better idea of why it informs me. And it's weird, Richard. I mean, <laughs> some of the places I've been and the stories are not only foundational to some of the, you know, some of pop culture out there in in terms of its influencing factor, but also just just completely strange. Can I tell you a story about this weird cryptid that I found out about in Bremerton.
0: Oh, we're going to talk shrimpy. Please do. Please (laughs) do. Before you, before you do that though, you and I were back and forth on Instagram and you mentioned the, the Northwest or the Pacific North weird, the Pacific North weird. Is that yours? I love
1: that. I I guess so. Yeah. I, it was just me being cheeky, but (laughs) yeah, slap that on a t-shirt. Yeah. That might be something right there. That's a t-shirt or a book or something. Um, and that's, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think in general, my relation to the Pacific Northwest, being born and bred here, staying here, and for as much as I travel, I always call it home. You know, I haven't done much work here, and, and those listeners were right, and so I, I feel like... There's still a lot of stories to be told here from the Pacific Northwest and a lot of uncovering. You know, um, I, I don't know how much detail I can get into this, but even within the UFO world, I feel like 1947, the year of the saucer, right? People think of Roswell right away when maybe they should be thinking about Kenneth Arnold. Sure. Maybe they should be thinking about the Maury Island incident, right. which Mount, happened soon after.
0: Right. Mount Rainier and.
1: Right. Sure. Right. Uh, you're, you're looking at the birthplace of, of that movement, um, both within the zeitgeist of, hey, this is a real phenomenon happening and people are reporting to, hey, the the, the pop culture phenomenon. That took off in 1947 based off the work of, you know, some of these magazines out of Chicago, right? Uh, Amazing stories, fate, etc. All had a birthplace in developing that narrative through those things happening in the Pacific Northwest. And so it's, it's a foundation to a lot of different avenues of the paranormal, whether it's UFOs or whether it's Sasquatch you know, you're looking at the birthplace of a lot of these things. And so, uh, I feel like there's more stories to uncover and I'm starting to get a little bit of a, frankly, a little bit of a calling to be like, you know what, maybe you, maybe you were born in the right place instead of going to Ohio so much, right? It's weird. I get it. Maybe you should stay home a little bit more and start tackling some of these stories right in your backyard.
0: So, uh, is Kitsap County
1: and Bremerton in your backyard? It was. It's not anymore. I'm down here in the the hinterlands of the Oregon coast, a uh, small rural farming community, uh, just you know right next to the right next to the Pacific Ocean here. But uh, you know, I spent a, a tremendous amount of time in Washington State uh, and the Puget Sound area, and th- there was you know a, a, a decade or more where Bremerton was just a ferry ride away, and so I have many friends and acquaintances that have trekked there that have you know left seattle to to go find uh, this this weirder darker stranger little place and uh that that's i think frankly why some of these stories are starting to come to light is because the there's people that i care about that are starting to explore them and go like hey did you know this happened <laughs>
0: Right. Which which brings us to to shrimpy, which also sort of dates back to the you mentioned 47 and Roswell and, and Kenneth Arnold. And, and this story sort of is of that vintage as well.
1: It sure is. Yeah. It, th- the story goes that in 1948, um, this woman Miss Staples was living in an apartment in Bremerton. Uh, and one morning while hanging clothes in the basement, she felt like she was being watched. Now, in this basement were these huge holes that many thought led to water. Uh, Miss Staples turns towards these holes to discover a five-foot-tall, bright orange, crusty-looking creature with sort of um. Uh, she reports it as tiny, spidery legs, and that sighting, you know, scared her enough that that she moved right away to live with a relative in Seattle. But she couldn't, quite, she couldn't quite shake that image of what she saw. So Miss Staples decided she was going to investigate a little bit. And she did that by actually going to the Seattle Aquarium. And it was there that she spotted a little shrimp on display. And to this day claims it was the closest thing to the five-foot beast she witnessed in that dark basement. So imagine that Richard turning around to see just a giant shrimp like creature looking at you (laughs) Mm,
0: right right
1: Uh, or uh better a shrimp
0: than a cockroach i guess
1: oh my gosh yeah you're yeah you're not wrong about that um what's what's interesting about there's there's a lot of things that are interesting about this story and i know it seems so incredibly strange that it almost seems uh camp right it's 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 for my for my taste, it seems like too strange to even consider sometimes. But for the last season of Euphemet, I did a feature on this man, Garrett Kelly. And he was one of these friends of mine from Seattle that moved, you know, to Bremerton to, to get away from, you know, all the cultural landmarks basically being bulldozed for, you know, a, a luxury apartment buildings and such. But he also co-created this platform called Liminal Earth. And what this website is, is basically uh, an open database where people can log on and then report strange anomalies. And the, the, the phone on really varies. They don't have um, uh, UFOs only policy or something. You know, it includes strange lights and Bigfoot to, uh, you know, things as weird as people seeing a dog wearing shoes around town. Right. So it's, it's pretty fringe type of stuff. But, you know, feeling stifled. He went out to Bremerton and he loved it. Mostly because it felt really weird out there on the peninsula, and so he moves to Bremerton. Um, he told me about Trimpy and his research on the event, and he tells me because of Bremerton's role as a as a really a home base for m- many naval installations, including research installations dating, you know, uh, pre World War II, that weird stuff happens on the peninsula there. Um, allegedly, there's tests. You know, um, it gets as strange as some folks saying that the Navy had experimented with using dolphins as weapons right there in the peninsula. So perhaps this is what could explain such a weird creature as Shrimpy. You know, uh, was this something that got loose out of, you know, one of these uh, strange uh, fringe test sites there? Um, or, you know, was it exposed to something that it, it, it really, you know, shouldn't have been exposed to? Right. Now, now she, um,
0: Virginia Staples, as you say, she, she fled to Seattle, but then she returned to the scene of the crime, and I guess this— complex was on Denny Street or something. Right. Uh, What did she find when she went back?
1: Well, the building had been demolished. And so there was no trace. There was uh, no way to corroborate the evidence at that point in time of these huge gaping holes in the basement. Um, You know, I've wondered about that as well, why there would be like sort of these large holes in basements at that time. You know, was it? old pipes, you know, was this apartment building converted from, you know, say, like an old sawmill or something where they, you know, the, the, the flow of water is, is needed to be done in certain particular ways for the production process. I'm not sure, but it's certainly a possibility um, based off the the amount of old buildings that still remain in that town and that area that were formerly industrial locations,
0: well, uh, it's an interesting, you know, whether the story is true or not, and it's, I think that trail has probably gone cold, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, b- but whether it's true or not, it's, it's certainly kind of a wonderful entree into th- the weirdness that is Bremerton and, and Kitsap uh, County, right? I mean, w- that, which leads us to another spooky spot, Starvation Heights.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I visited this place as well. And, you know, in the early 1900s, there was this individual named Dr. Linda Hazard. She was actually a licensed fasting specialist who who believed that the root of all disease lay in food. So she essentially starved patients to death with extreme fasts, with uh, sort of brutal enemas that sometimes lasted for hours. Um, Massages, reportedly, that were described as being more like beatings. And all of this was done, according to Dr. Hazard, to let the digestive system rest. So, you had situations where people were fasting some more than 50 days before meeting their end, which, I mean, imagine what hell that must have been in the pursuit of trying to be cured of something Mm, right mm. so uh, allegedly more than a dozen people died while in treatment there with linda hazard and she was eventually convicted of manslaughter years later but she served just nine years richard before returning to the peninsula to open another sanitarium and ultimately you know she died during a fast herself in the 70s
0: interesting uh and uh, my my interest kind of peaked with this story because i'm i'm doing the intermittent fasting which is all the rage nothing <laughs> right. nothing so no so, nothing so extreme as uh, linda hazard uh, prescribed but um so this is in olala, olala is that the name of the town
1: that's right yeah and and what's olala like have you been or do you plan on going i guess I have been, you know, I've been to this exact site and, you know, it, it's kind of an overgrown little small town. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a blip on the radar on the way to Bermerton, really. Um, you know, that whole area is, is uh, feels so mystical though, because of the amount of old growth that you're constantly surrounded by, you're up against the Olympic National Forest, which is, a, a gar, a, a gar, can I speak, a gargantuan. Uh, rainforest, untouched. And, you know, on the other side of you is either the Hood Canal or the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And so, you, you know, this peninsula, you, you feel as if more on an island than a peninsula in terms of your, um, you know, access point to even getting out. You feel a little stuck. You feel a little nestled in. So, you know, Alala is just another one of those towns on that road, Uh, you know, a little derelict, I think, but um, just sort of good people that have found their place out in the middle of nowhere, and they like it like that, right? And I think we see institutions like this historically popping up in areas like that, that are just a little bit off the beaten path, right? Like, you really have to want to go there to get there, especially in those days. And I kept finding those stories along the way of these, you know, little deserted areas that if you didn't know about them, you would drive past them. You know, every day for your entire life and not know that, you know, a hundred years ago, something this sort of weird and sinister was going on right on the other side of that fence. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the
0: bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you. Now you're going to die.
1: You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? how could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls.
0: Planky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in.
1: What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like.
0: Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R A M P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of the IC terms and conditions apply. How do the locals feel about the name Starvation Heights?
1: That's interesting. I, I didn't you know the, uh, I spoke to only a, a few locals and and there was uh, there was no real sort of pushback on on that term, I think the story is fairly intriguing for those that actually live there that know about it. I think then in addition to the folks that, that go out there to sort of get lost, right? There's also the people that are drawn there because it's weird and because there's things like the starvation heights where they can go and investigate or explore, um, or even have a picnic in, right? I mean, it it, it gets that weird. What's interesting about what you're saying about intermittent fasting. For example, is that many times when it comes to some of these techniques involving, um, you know, medicinal techniques, um, uh, the health benefits of, of some sort of spiritualism, you know, it, it almost appears that there are maybe half truths in in all of this, and I think that expands with the paranormal. Is that for for the amount that is dangerous, for the amount that is, doesn't connect with our 3D consensus reality, right? There are perhaps parts of it that, that do hold some truth. I mean, you know, I don't think Linda Hazard was, you know, necessarily wrong that maybe a a, a huge proponent of some of our health issues are, you know, they're responsible or food is responsible for them, right? I mean, we, we know that now, and so there were things that maybe she was onto that uh, in the way that she executed treatment for was not right. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe there was something there. One of the things that was also very interesting about Hazard was that people reported that she had a little bit of a hypnotic quality to her. That she had these, these dark eyes and this low voice. And, and some wonder if Hazard's involvement in things like the occult and in spiritualism endowed her with some sort of strange abilities. Was she using this to convince so many to starve themselves to death? But I, I think in, in, in my own opinion that, that maybe some of those teachings inspired her, uh, idea that, that food and fasting, these are interrelated things that are connected to our, you know, health um, but you kind of have to stop there because, you know, in regards to occult text or spiritualism or, or, you know, even the the emergence of new thought, I think you'd you'd have to, you'd have to stop cold in your tracks at some point on on what an inspiration that would be in terms of the nefarious nature of it. So the uh, the house where Doctor Starvation
0: uh, worked out of is is that is that still standing?
1: It's not. Yeah. In fact, the only thing that is left there is is sort of a wall and a silo. And I, I visited, like I said, I visited the space. I walked the grounds, and it was it was really creepy, Richard. I mean, it's rumored that beneath the the sort of numerous rebar poles that protrude from the ground are actually more victims of hazard, and these are. Folks that, you know, their names are lost to time because Hazard had many international patients who traveled there to be treated by her. Uh, And it was in a time when someone could disappear much easier,
0: you know. So there may be many more victims that we that, that have been lost to the ages.
1: This is the rumor and this is what, you know, going back to maybe the perspective from the locals, some of the local lore around this place is that. Hey, you know, a lot more people, you know, were murdered by hazard, did meet their end there, and uh, th- their bodies are sort of lost to time, and they're in that hill somewhere. Uh, you know, who who's to say? Um, and that's the thing about some of these legends and lores, without a substantial amount of money or backing to, to help investigate something like this, to, to open a case back up or whatever, you know, it could be argued – uh, what would that do for something like this anyway? And then, you know, the fact of the matter is a lot of the stuff does just kind of go away with time. And that we we may never know the truth about how many people were actually, you know, suffered at the hands of hazards treatment. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how how we can sort of lose the story within time and, and uh, folks are forgotten in that as well.
0: Sticking with the Kitsap Peninsula, tell me about the lady in the lake. I'm not familiar with this story.
1: Yeah, well, this is, um, this location was one of the more extremely emotional places I went to, I think. You know, I honestly, Richard, like, I don't, I would never qualify myself as a journalist. Um, I'm, I'm maybe a storyteller, uh, you know, I strive to be an essayist, I think. My reflection of that place is one of, of a lot of uh, is a lot of a lot of loss that um is 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 looking for a voice, and uh, that that story kind of resonates with one of the most um you know sort of important or uh, at least the m- most well known of the little known secrets that this lake holds. So there's this lakeside lodge. It's in the Olympic National Park. Uh, Guests and uh, staff have reported the visage of a dark-haired woman roaming its halls. Um, The woman many believe to be the spirit of a former employee, actually, a uh, Hallie Illingworth. Now, Hallie was originally from Kentucky, but moved to the secluded town surrounding Lake Crescent, uh, nestled between the rainforest and the strait, and worked at the lodge as a bartender, when she was murdered by her boyfriend and dumped into the Frigid Lake. Where this story gets, you know, very haunting is that years later, Hallie's body rises to the top of the lake. This is cr- and uh, Crescent Lake, right? This is Crescent Lake. And, and the year, you know, this this happens in the 1940s. Again, like, I'm not sure the resonance of 1940s in the Pacific Northwest is uh, pretty profound, and we keep coming back to that that era. So, her body rises at to the top of Crescent Lake, and to the surprise of everyone, Hallie's body looks pristine. It it looks almost as if porcelain, and it's revealed that due to the composition of the lake, her body is sopified. And what that means is essentially it's it's as if she was made of soap. So since then, uh, stories of Hallie along the the windy road there, around the lake and the lodge, and even nearby campsites have persisted. Uh, you know, calling her the Lady of the Lake. Wow. Yeah. Do we know. It's,
0: do we know who was responsible for her?
1: We do. Death? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was actually tried for her murder, and uh, you know, I don't think he served much time either. I think he was in and out. Um, you know, initially when her body was discovered, there was a uh, a much more well-to-do woman who went missing in the area, um, and authorities first jumped to the conclusion that it was this other woman, this this woman of means. And there was there was sort of like a there was sort of like a theme within the media that they didn't want to believe that it was just kind of a lowly a bartender from from the lodge you know it was much more important to frame it as someone of importance someone of stature right mm-hmm. well it was it was Hallie and uh, you know since then it, it seems as if you know her, her story has been again one of those lost time and that's what I continue it, you know no matter what I mean if you're thinking about this in the terms of metaphor right Uh it appears that the voice of Hallie would want to be heard. I mean, she reemerged from the lake like some sort of Disney princess with porcelain skin saying, here I am, you know, mm-hmm. like, here I am, you missed me. <laughs> and and you didn't do anything about my death. And you're still not doing anything about my death. And, and uh, these are the type of stories – um, that carry with them just a different feeling, Richard. And I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but we are talking about people's real lives that they've lost. We're not talking about sort of abstract thoughts or um, experiences that, yes, shape our lives, but but sometimes this stuff kills as well. And sometimes it displays in, in grim ways. And and and, s- and there's something about the Pacific Northwest that has a very close relationship to death in that way.
0: Mm-hmm i'm just i'm fascinated by the idea that this process of um, saponification um, where a, a body the, the the body fat i guess essentially is converted to to soap yeah uh it's it's amazing
1: yeah and i, I the lack of bacteria i think is something they cite uh, and and the temperature of that lake. It's a very deep I mean, lake, a
0: thousand feet at its. A very depth.
1: deep lake. You know, it, it's another one of those lakes too. Like this idea of the bottomless lake, right? That's another myth around Lake Crescent is that it is bottomless, in that it connects to some underground tunnel somewhere at some point as well. Um, you know, there's uh, there's lore about there being a, a beast perhaps in there. You know, uh, so there there is a lot of. Um, there's a lot of lore around that and that area, and it just so happens that it, it's kept so many more secrets than what it's revealed.
0: So, I want to talk about Dogmen. I'm familiar with the Dogmen of Bray Road in uh, Wisconsin, in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and uh, there are Dogmen reports in Texas and in Michigan, but I'm not familiar with Dogmen in the Pacific Northwest. What did you discover?
1: So as a part of this kind of journey through the Pacific Northwest, uh, the Puget Sound, um, the, the the Peninsula, but also the San Juan Islands, right? Um, this is an exclusive for, for your listeners' ears only, really, because um, this this episode won't come out for a while. But one of the episodes that I did for season four that will be released was having a conversation with a, a, a writer who is based in – a fiction writer um, who is based in – what is the island that she's, um, she's based on San Juan. She had an experience where after feeding her cat, she's coming back home, dark out headlights on stops at this intersection, sees a figure in the distance. This figure as it becomes closer and it takes shape is a six foot tall, uh, hunched to its side, breathing heavily, uh, ribs—you know—sort of extended in fear and panic. Uh, an almost Anubis-like dog-man creature. Uh, she she reiterated this this sense of this—this this would be something that you'd see as an Egyptian statue or something. Um, the same features, the same quality. And this thing stared back at her. This creature stared back with her with an amount of fear and um, wonderment about what she could have been as her headlines, uh, you know, as her headlights essentially froze it. Uh, she, you know, takes a hard corner. She's out of there, right? She's, <laughs> oh my God, I can't I guess believe like, so. I just saw a dog, man. Um, this individual had experience working as a zookeeper. And so her uh, instincts and her observation skills in terms of the anatomy of animals, et cetera, uh, was, was great. And so, you know, what she saw, she believes, was a dog man. The thing that was interesting about the island that she's at really revealed to her a lot of interesting things and presented with her, you know, you'll hear in this episode of, of a, several haunting experiences that she had. and. As she tried to, you know, as a skeptical person being essentially attacked or attacked by this concept of the paranormal and all these different shapes and forms that, that it can come in, it had her look into her lineage look into why this could be happening, trying to find some sort of reason as a skeptical person why this could be presenting it to her. And as she dug into you know, her lineage of, of Irish and Scandinavian descent, she started to come upon these theories about islands acting as liminal spaces, right? I think this can be said for a lot of the Pacific Northwest, uh, especially that Puget Sound area, as being a liminal space. Now, liminalism is this idea that sort of places in between hold a greater ability to see through the other side of that supposed veil as if the veil is thinner in these locations and more interaction with the strange can occur other places are hotels trains hallways staircases and islands and peninsulas may be considered luminal spaces the thing about this this idea that's fascinating to me with this thinner veil is that you know when she saw this dog man, she thought to herself, I'm invading it. This thing with my headlights, oh my God, I'm a UFO to it.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: And so how many times are, are, are we on that preface? and someone has an experience where they see a cryptid or lights in the sky and maybe we're actually the invaders in that space as we're peering through the veil or we appear to them in their dimension for that
0: moment in time. That's a very interesting perspective. I often think of that when I'm maybe visiting some place where they have a koi pond and mm. I mean I you can only take this sort of analogy so far because I realize that yes fish can look up and jump out of the water and so forth but <laughs> when we stick our finger into uh, a fish pond if the fish you know were were able to think they would view that surely as some sort of a, a paranormal occurrence, not understanding that, sure. that that breaking of the surface of the water is attached to a finger, is attached to a body, is attached to a an entire universe outside of their mm. known world.
1: Man, that's really good. Richard, I'm still writing my stuff for that episode, so I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours <laughs> for what it's I worth. Mean, it, I, I think it's something that, you know, I think as humans, we, uh, even those who I think tried to disattach from ego and things of this nature. I think that's still a very egoic perspective perhaps, because I I think inherently we, we feel as if we have dominion over kind of space and time and that, you know, we'll find the answers and, and we can bend reality to, to suit our needs when in reality, you know, we, we probably don't know as much as we think we do. Right. And it just so happens that we, yeah, we may be the intruders within this space and not the other way around, right? Um, you know, it might be their yard and not ours that we're trespassing in.
0: <laughs> well, if it's their yard, then they have to cut the grass and rake the leaves, I guess.
1: Uh, season four of Euphemet, uh, how do we listen? So season four begins on Thursday, March 11th, and folks can listen to wherever they listen to podcasts. You can subscribe. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts would be really helpful. You can follow on Spotify, and uh, you can go to euphomet.com to to find it right there and all the ways you can engage with it, and that's E-U-P-H-O-M-E-T.com. Jim, always a delight. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I, I really appreciate
0: it.